Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. For the first time ever, I'm joined by a co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and a rising star here as well. Say hello to everyone, Kristen. Hi, and thanks, Gary, for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited for you to be here, too. So today, I'm also excited about our content. We're going to be exploring recent developments related to the implementation of the Pillar 2 Global Rules, the 15% jurisdictional top-up tax levied on excess profits that we all know and love. Since the last podcast on Pillar 2, a lot has happened. Several countries have moved forward with drafting legislative text to implement the Globe Rules. Importantly, and as we'll discuss, this marks a shift and what taxpayers should be focused on. From the output produced by a bunch of bureaucrats in Paris to national legislation. But also those bureaucrats in the OECD G20 inclusive framework on BEPS continue to release new and much needed administrative guidance related to the GLOBE rules. We're gonna talk about those as well. To help us explore these and other developments, I'm joined again by Kevin Brogan, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and Marcus Heeland, a managing director in KPMG's WNT EVS Practice. Hello, guys. Hello. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having us back. Glad to have you back. So let's jump right into the topic for today, Pillar 2. So we're going to talk about where have we been, where are we now, and where are we going? So where have we been? The GLOBE model rules were adopted in December of 2021, so almost a year and a half ago now. And throughout most of 2022, we saw slow but steady progress towards implementation of the GLOBE rules. But this progress really accelerated dramatically in the last few weeks of 2022 with the OECD release of a portion of the implementation package for the GLOBE rules. And this included, among other things, guidance related to safe harbors, adoption of the Pillar 2 directive by the EU, and then the surprising enactment of legislation in South Korea implementing Pillar 2 as of 2024. While the model rules provide the framework for the GLOBE rules, they're only intended to be the basis for national legislation. So what does that mean? That means that countries still have to take the model rules and turn them into legislative text in their jurisdiction. And some of the momentum for Pillar 2 implementation that we saw at the end of last year has now carried into 2023, as we've since seen several countries release draft Pillar 2 legislation. So turning to you now, Marcus, what's the current status of various countries' efforts to turn the model rules into actual legislative text? What countries have started this process, and then where do we stand at this point? Thanks, Kristen. So you are correct that the OECD model rules are just that, model rules. So in order for those rules to have any effect, implementing jurisdictions need to take the model and breathe life into them by going through their domestic legislative process. And that's uh, what's happening now. A quick tour on legislative status, starting with Asia Pacific. You mentioned Korea. They kick things off by passing legislation for an income inclusion rule and an under tax profits rule. 
both of which take effect in 2024. There remains hope that Korea will shift the effective date of its UTPR back a year to be consistent with the OECD agreement, but that's uncertain. Beyond Korea, in late March this year, Japan enacted the income inclusion rule, which applies to fiscal years beginning on or after April 1st of 2024. The Japan legislation does not include a UTPR or a QDMTT. Legislation on those two rules is expected next year. Australia and New Zealand have not yet enacted the Pillar 2 rules, but both jurisdictions have given formal indications that they intend to implement at some point this year. As for the major investment hubs in Asia-Pacific, that would include Hong Kong and Singapore, both jurisdictions have released official plans to implement a qualified domestic top-up tax that, as currently envisioned, would take effect in 2025 in both of those jurisdictions. Malaysia, another key investment hub in Asia-Pacific, has also made a formal indication that it will pursue a QDMTT effective in 2024. Moving to Europe, the UK released legislation just this month to implement an IIR and a QDMTT. Both of those rules would take effect in 2024. And of course, all the major EU economies, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain, are all moving towards national legislation to enact the rules this year. Significantly, Ireland um, has also released draft legislation recently, including legislation to implement a qualified domestic top-up tax that would take effect in 2024. Switzerland also has an official plan to implement a QDMTT that takes effect in 2024, subject to a public vote this year. In the Americas, Canada released its annual budget recently, which included a formal indication to implement an IIR and QDMTT from 2024. Mexico has also given a formal indication to implement. And then finally, the U.S. Uh, seems unlikely that the U.S. will implement Pillar 2-inspired legislation at least for the next two years. But U.S. multinationals will, of course, still be impacted as the other countries that I mentioned do implement. So as you can see, there's a flurry of activity around the world, and it seems within the next, say, six months or so that, that we could see enactment in a large number of major economies. Finally, another key message here is that our expectation remains that QDMTTs will do most of the work, at least as it relates to non-U.S. income. The IIR and UTPR are there, but those rules are excess baggage if QDMTTs proliferate, which seems uh, very likely. So it seems like we've seen a lot of activity recently. Of the countries that have started this process, have you noticed anything particularly noteworthy as they're translating the model rules into legislation? Are the approaches fairly consistent with the OECD's rules, or are we seeing significant departures from the model rules? So up until now, I think we've mostly been focused on the OECD model in the commentary on the basis that countries are expected to follow the outcomes in the model rules as part of their national legislation. And I think that is generally right, but it is important to make sure that national legislation does not contain unfavorable deviations or departures, as you say, from the model. And I'll give you two examples of that that I've seen with the companies that I support, and both examples relate to the UK legislation. The first example relates to Article 7.4, which deals with computing effective tax rates for controlled investment entities or investment funds. There are a number of special rules that apply here, uh, but one of those special rules is that to compute the ETR, you back out the portion of income that relates to external interest. 
you then commensurately back out a proportionate share of the entity's taxes that relate to that external interest. Taxes paid the shareholder level on the income of the investment entity, say under subpart F, are also taken into account. Under the OECD rules, those CFC regime taxes are not haircut to account for the external interest because those CFC regime taxes don't relate to the external interest. However, the UK draft law from earlier this month got that wrong. Under the UK draft, both entity level taxes and CFC regime taxes were haircut by the external interest, producing distortedly low ETRs in some cases. Thankfully, just today, actually, there was an amendment paper issued by the House of Commons that fixes this. And it was only fixed because this issue was identified and raised with HM Treasury as a departure from the model. Another example relates to Article 3.3, and this one has a, a less happy ending because it still hasn't been fixed, is that there is a shipping income exclusion under the OECD rules. That shipping exclusion requires that the relevant entity demonstrate substance. In particular, it needs to demonstrate strategic or commercial management. The UK legislation departs from that and requires strategic and commercial management, which is obviously more onerous. Both examples I know are niche, but I think they illustrate a general point. That is, it is now time to shift our attention to actual national legislation. And as part of this, it seems important to identify the five to 10 key articles in the OECD model rules and just make sure that those the aspects of those rules that are important in you know, the company's facts are carried over into national legislation. That's helpful to understand. I think it's just important that key stakeholders really at this point, like you said, should be following the individual country's legislative process as we shift into the implementation phase. So as far as actual implementation up to this point, it seems that the primary focus in terms of timing has really been on the implementation of UTPRs. Marcus, do you think we'll see QDMTTs or even IIRs take effect in 2024, or should we expect that timeline to be pushed out? Well, I think we'll absolutely see IIRs effective in 2024, not least because the EU directive requires that. Beyond the EU, the UK, for example, is clearly pursuing a 2024 effective date for its income inclusion rule, as are a number of other countries. QDMTTs are more fluid in terms of timing. Some major investment hubs have made public indications that they're pursuing a 2024 effective date for their QDMTT. That would include Switzerland and Malaysia, for example. Equally, other major investment hubs have publicly indicated that they are pursuing a 2025 effective date for their QDMTT. That would include Singapore and Hong Kong, for example. So overall, I think the direction of travel is IIRs will take effect in a large number of major economies in 2024, and QDMTTs will take effect in some investment hubs in 2024 and other investment hubs in 2025. You didn't ask about UTPRs, but just to say, I expect those to come online in 2025, although Korea's action has somewhat destabilized that. If Korea moves ahead with a 2024 effective date for its UTPR, other jurisdictions may do the same. And I think that's why there's you know, hope and sustained advocacy to ensure that Korea pushes that back to 2025. And a plug for the KPMG tracker that listeners can use to keep all this uh, legislation straight and uh, around the timing. 
Uh, Marcus, you're my KPMG tracker, but for people without access to you on a daily basis, this is a good resource. I think it bears repeating something you said, Marcus, that we expect most non-U.S. income to be sort of hoovered up through these QDMTTs. And so that's what I'm tracking for foreign income is when do these QDMTTs come online? And the other point is I think you got it as well is that for U.S. income of U.S. multinationals, what we're really focused on is the timeline of the UTPRs, because that's when U.S. income potentially comes within scope, U.S. multinational income, that is. So we've been told that the globe model rules are, like the fecklessness of my beloved Browns, immutable. In December 2021, 140 plus countries agreed that they would faithfully implement the model rules into their national laws. Yet while the text of the model rules may not change, the meaning of that text is constantly evolving. And truthfully, new rules that supplement the model rules are also being written all the time. As a part of the model rules, each country agreed that its tax administration would apply the globe rules in accordance with any agreed administrative guidance. In March 2022, the Inclusive Framework published the first tranche of this administrative guidance in the form of the commentary to the model rules. Think of the commentary like our Treasury regulations, which clarify and sometimes build upon the provisions of the code. The commentary, like our regulations, are themselves not set in stone. They will undoubtedly be amended over and over, in large part to address issues that are uncovered in the process of implementing and administering these complex rules. So on February 2nd, 2023, the Inclusive Framework issued another tranche of guidance, what we call the Administrative Guidance, or AG, which will amend the commentary. The AG addresses many open issues left after the commentary. We're going to just focus on a few. So prior to the AG, there was some uncertainty about the order in which the globe charging mechanisms, the QDMTT, IR, UTPR, should be applied and their coordination with existing local tax laws. What do we know now about the order in which the globe rules should be applied, Kevin? So the AG did squarely address that question. We knew before the AG that when you calculate the ETR with respect to a jurisdiction for purposes of applying an IAR and a UTPR, that U.S. CFC taxes or branch taxes imposed by the U.S. with respect to income earned in foreign jurisdictions under regimes like the subpart F regime and the guilty regime would be taken into account. We now know that when you're calculating the ETR for a given jurisdiction under a QDMTT, that guilty taxes or branch taxes and subpart F taxes will not be taken into account. And so that puts forth the kind of final rule order in which taxes are first assessed by a home country against income generated there under a QDMTT. And then the U.S., if it's a U.S. multinational, will impose tax on that same income under either a CFC regime like guilty or subpart F or through taxing branches. 
and to alleviate double tax that could arise by QDMTT taxing that income, as well as the U.S., we'll hope to see future guidance come out that a QDMTT will be a creditable tax, because without that, multinationals could face a risk of double tax. And then finally, at the end of the rule order, you have the IAR and UTPR, where in the first instance, they are reduced by amounts paid under a QDMTT. And second, in deciding if a foreign jurisdiction is low taxed, we'll take into account a share of U.S. taxes paid by a U.S. multinational in respect of that foreign income. So the AG also discusses the allocation of taxes paid under so-called blended CFC tax regimes and specifically calls out guilty as one of these regimes. Kevin, at a high level, what is this rule doing? And if the QDMTT applies without regard to guilty taxes allocable to a jurisdiction, do we even care about this allocation rule? As a very basic step, you have to figure out when taxes are paid at a U.S. shareholder level or a parent level in respect to foreign income, how much tax is paid with respect to that income. And if you're in a regime where that income in a foreign jurisdiction is taxed directly and not blended with other foreign income, you can figure out, obviously, the amount of U.S. tax paid there. But we don't have regimes like that in the U.S., And guilty in particular was a challenging one because tested income of CFCs is blended with tested losses of other CFCs. And taxes paid on tested income in a given foreign jurisdiction can be used to reduce U.S. guilty tax due on tested income in another jurisdiction. And so we needed a mechanism to figure out, number one, how much guilty tax should we deem paid? And two, how would we divvy that up among the jurisdictions? So as you astutely noted, the QDMTT does not consider guilty tax in determining if the operations in the source country are low taxed. So do you even care? And there are a few reasons you do care. The one most immediate one is that, as Margus pointed out, a few of the QDMTTs we've seen so far are delayed a year. So for 2024, for instance, if the QDMTT doesn't take into effect until 2025. If you're a company that's not able to apply the safe harbor in a given foreign jurisdiction because you you don't meet the safe harbor tests, you'll have to do a full, full pillar two calculation. And if that is being done by a parent company under an IAR or a subsidiary or brother-sister company under a UTPR, you will need to know how much guilty was paid with respect to that jurisdiction, even if there will be a QDMTT in that jurisdiction in subsequent years. The second and more interesting reason is kind of the knock-on effects of where you operate in a multinational group where many of the foreign jurisdictions or most have QDMTTs, but you have one or two that are in countries that don't enact a QDMTT. There, you could have surprising results that you have to kind of really model out where essentially because so many of your operations are in places with the QDMTT that don't get allocated guilty tax, all of the guilty tax might go to one or two jurisdictions without a QDMTT and transform what could be a very low tax jurisdiction into a very high tax jurisdiction. 
And you also have the final question of, well, what if all of my jurisdictions have a QDMTT or have a globe jurisdictional ETR above 13.125% such that they're not entitled to a guilty allocation? What happens then? The AG still has calculated an amount of alcohol blended CFC tax, that is the amount of guilty they deem paid in respect to foreign operations. If you have no foreign jurisdictions to allocate it to, because all either QDMTT jurisdictions or jurisdictions with a globe ETR above the 13.125% hurdle rate, do you get to keep those taxes in the U.S. ETR determination? And while you'd hope so, it's not entirely clear. So we are looking for further guidance on that point. Yeah, that's interesting. And it may seem odd that you would have guilty with respect to income above that's a subject to a foreign ETR above 13.125%. But as we all know, that can happen because of, for instance, expense allocation. So it's not uncommon. So Kevin, the U.S. has another regime that taxes CFC income now, the Corporate Alternative Minimum Tax or a CAMT. Does the AG explain how a CAMT liability attributable to CFC income is taken into account? No. So I think the need for guidance, there's an overwhelming number of areas, right? And you can only, I guess, tackle so many at a time. So I feel for the inclusive framework in that regard. And I think guilty allocation was just at the top of the list. For the CAMP-T, because there's a blending of domestic losses with the foreign income, it was noted that it doesn't qualify as a blended CFC regime. And so that the AG guidance doesn't apply to allocate CAMT taxes. It did not rule out, though, that CAMT could be a CFC tax that would be pushed down to the foreign jurisdictions through some other mechanism. And we don't yet have guidance on that. For many taxpayers I've been talking to, they believe their CAMT liability, if they have any, is almost never driven by their CFC operations. And so under a facts and circumstances approach would instead be better suited to be kept in the U.S. jurisdiction and not pushed down because that's just simply not where the liability relates. And on that point, would taxpayers even want to push down taxes under QMT? Again, if the QDMTT is going to apply without regard to CFC-like taxes, might taxpayers be better off keeping these taxes in the U.S. to shield U.S. income from the UTPR? Certainly. So for taxpayers who feel that their U.S. ETR might get close to 15% for various reasons, then the more tax you can keep in the U.S. ETR, the better. And if you don't need additional CFC tax to get your CFC jurisdictions to the 15% rate, or it's not relevant anyway because you're paying under a QDMTT, then you would want to keep that CAMT liability in the U.S., and often justifiably so, because you can identify that it is your U.S. operations, not your foreign operations, that are driving your CAMT liability. That makes sense. Kevin, another issue that wasn't addressed prior to the AG relates to loss-making parent entities of controlled foreign corporations. And this issue generally arises where a parent entity has a domestic loss that offsets foreign income under a worldwide tax regime. So, for example, this issue can arise under U.S. law where a U.S. entity has a domestic loss 
that offsets its guilty or subpart F inclusion. And just at a high level, this offsetting loss has several U.S. tax consequences. So first, it can reduce the foreign tax credit limitation and create a foreign tax credit carry forward. And then second, it can create an overall domestic loss or ODL account, which operates to recharacterize U.S. income as foreign source income in the future. Because the model rules generally assume that income and loss from different jurisdictions aren't netted together, which clearly isn't always true, without relief, taxpayers in jurisdictions such as the United States would be at a disadvantage. And so to ensure that the rules produce similar results when applied to both worldwide and territorial tax regimes, the AG provides for a deferred tax asset or a DTA for domestic source losses that would have resulted in a DTA if they weren't offset by foreign source income under ODL rules. So essentially creating a DTA that will reverse for GLOBE purposes in a recapture year. The AG also notes that some jurisdictions have similar rules that apply to offset domestic losses with income arising through a permanent establishment, but that the inclusive framework is still considering whether to provide a DTA for GLOBE purposes in those situations. And based on this statement, it seems that this rule only applies to ODLs arising from CFC inclusions and not foreign source income from a branch, despite the fact that the way the rules drafted, it could equally apply to both. So, Kevin, do we have a sense of where the inclusive framework is on this issue and then why they deferred in the AG? You're 100% correct that the guidance we have today does relate just to CFC inclusions and that we don't have a rule that would extend a similar DTA-style relief to branch situations. I would hope one would be forthcoming because the considerations are exactly the same. We just don't have it yet. We also don't have a mechanism for allocating our blended kind of branch system taxes to branch jurisdictions either in the same way that we did get one for allocating blended guilty tax to the CFC jurisdictions. So I'm suspecting, but maybe more hoping that that's just an indication that things are not quite as far along for branches, but that we'll see similar type provisions coming out in the future. That makes sense. And hopefully we do get that guidance. The AG also separately addresses CFC tax regimes that don't allow foreign tax credit carry forward. So obviously the big one in the U.S. is guilty. Why did they provide a separate rule? I think it's maybe best understood by thinking about the the purpose of the relief granted, right? It was to make you whole for the fact that in the U.S., a domestic loss would offset foreign source income in a year rather than allow you to keep the domestic loss as an NOL in a future year. And so What the relief was, was to say, when you recapture the domestic loss as foreign income in the future year, we want to give you a NOL-like DTA that you can use for the U.S. ETR if that recapture of the U.S. income as foreign source allows you to use more credits. But we don't want to just give you 15% of the ODL. Because if when you recapture the U.S. source income as foreign, if you don't actually use foreign tax credits, then you're not harmed. And so that would be giving you a windfall 
to shelter other low-tax U.S. income. So they wanted a cap in place as to how big this DTA could be. And they approached it from two different buckets. And I think the first one I'll talk about is guilty because it's a little bit easier. Since we don't have a carry-forward system there, if you have U.S. source income that is recaptured as guilty basket, the most you can do with that is utilize current year guilty FTCs, excess credits, since we have no carry forwards. And so there, the DTA is capped at the amount of excess guilty FTCs you use in the year of the ODL recapture. There's a separate rule for subpart F that is a bit more problematic, and I'm hopeful that maybe it will be refined before it is finalized. As as Gary noted, these are all just guidance that will eventually be finalized and put into the commentary. So basically, it looks and says, in the year the domestic loss arose, you had foreign tax credits that you weren't able to use because the U.S. loss reducing your foreign source income reduced your FTC capacity. And so you generated FTC carry forwards. So what this mechanism would do is say, when the ODL is recaptured as foreign source income in the general basket, you can get 15% of that ODL recapture up to the amount of credit carry forwards used from the year in which the domestic loss arose. And there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, we have a precise ordering rule for how you use foreign tax credits. So in the year you recapture an ODL and treat domestic source income as foreign source, you can use foreign tax credits, but the order in which you do so is first you use current year credits, and then you use carry forwards starting with the earliest year. So if your loss arose in year three and you recapture the loss in year five, first you're going to use year five excess credits, and then you're going to go back to year one and look at excess credits you're carrying forward from there. And so what can happen is you can end up when the ODL is recaptured, not using any of the carry forwards from the year the loss arose, year three, in which case the AG rule for the substitute loss DTA would give you no coverage. It'd be worth zero. And obviously that's a problem and hopefully that will be taken into consideration and maybe fixed so that you don't only just get the substitute loss DTA when you use carry forwards from the domestic loss year, but to the extent you that, that increased capacity when you recapture the domestic income as foreign source allows you to use any credits, excess credits from that year, any prior year. And that's something I think we'll focus on because that will equally apply to the branch basket, right? Because that's another FTC basket where you get carry forwards from earlier years and can use current year excess credits. And so we would need to not be limited where you have a ODL in the branch basket to just getting substitute loss DTA where you use credits generated in the year of the domestic loss that creates the branch basket ODL. So let's shift gears and talk about the transition period rule. Article 9.1.3 of the model rules, known colloquially as the transition period rule, provides that in the case of a transfer of non-inventory assets between constituent entities of an M&E group after November 30th, 2021, 
and before the commencement of a transition year, the basis in the acquired assets, quote, shall be based upon the disposing entity's carrying value of the transferred assets upon disposition with the deferred tax assets and liabilities brought into GLOBE determined on that basis, end quote. A transition year with respect to a jurisdiction and an &E group is the first year that such jurisdiction is subject to GLOBE. As the commentary makes clear, this rule is intended to limit taxpayers' ability to step up their GLOBE basis or create a DTA where the resulting gain was not included in the computation of GLOBE income. Think of the transition period rule like the regulations issued by the U.S. Treasury to combat the donut hole transactions that occurred between the last E&P measurement date for 965 and the effective date of guilty. So the AG provides a lot of guidance on the transition period rule, some taxpayer favorable, some not so much. Among the rules that fall mostly in the latter category, the AG clarifies what is meant by a transfer of assets for purposes of determining what transactions are in scope. Kevin, how is the term interpreted and what kind of transactions could be swept into this rule? So it is interpreted very, very broadly. For things that are maybe not such a stretch in your imagination, it applies to like the sale of a controlling interest. And I think that is meant to be where it is treated as a transfer of assets. But it's not so clear as to by who. Like, for example, if a CFC sells a DRE to another CFC, that is a sale of controlling interest. It's a transfer of assets from the U.S. perspective, but not either from the DRE itself or the CFC. So is that captured? That's a little bit ambiguous. Another one to watch out for is even just a prepaid transaction where you don't, in the colloquial sense, think that you've transferred an asset at all. Like, say you prepay a royalty. But in prepaying the royalty for accounting purposes, the person who made the prepayment creates a kind of prepaid asset. And so they will only get a deduction in future periods that the royalty relates to through amortizing that asset. Well, now we know the transition rule applies to say that you get zero basis in that prepaid asset, even if you had it for gap, unless you meet the relief criteria that is that the recipient of the royalty is subject to enough tax that you actually can keep some of that basis in your amortizable prepaid asset. So it's very broad. So the transition period rule is in the nature of, I would say, a per se anti-abuse rule. And before the AG, there was concern that the transition period rule applied to transactions that not only weren't intended to avoid GLOBE, but could have resulted in significant regular tax. That is, the transition period rule was clearly intended to disallow any GLOBE benefit arising from Cayman selling during the transition period its IP to the U.S. or to Ireland. Cayman pays no regular tax or GLOBE tax, and yet, absent the transition period rule, the U.S. or Irish company would obtain a DTA under GAAP or basis under IFRS, which could then eliminate future GLOBE top-up tax. But what if the U.S. is selling to Ireland or Ireland to the U.S. and the sale 
is subject to corporate tax. The AG would provide some relief here. Kevin, could you tell us how this relief would work? So the, you first start off with the, the basic rule of the transition rule holds that you get no basis in the asset that is transferred. And so for IFRS, where you generally would get basis, we're told that basis is carryover. For the U.S., you generally kept carryover basis and would create a deferred. And in the base case, the deferred tax asset would also be zero. Under the guidance, you can change that zero result to up to 15% DTA if the seller paid tax on the transfer. And paid tax means literally paid cash tax in that year, or you can use an attribute. But the catch in using the attribute is that it has to be an attribute that would not have expired for your transition year, which can be anywhere from 2024 up until 2027 if you qualify for the safe harbor all three years. And then the final aspect to note is that in deciding if the seller paid tax, even if the seller's a Cayman entity, well, you can take into account shareholder taxes. So if the Cayman sale triggered subpart F and there was 21% tax paid currently at the U.S. shareholder level, that could count to get the recipient a deferred tax asset for the book tax difference that was created where you kept the book basis at carryover and you stepped up the tax basis to fair market value. So that does take away some of the sting of the, the harshness of the per se transition rule where the seller did in fact pay tax directly or through its shareholder. Thanks, Kevin. So let's wrap this episode up with a look forward. Marcus, are there any big issues that you're expecting guidance on in the near future? I anticipate guidance in a few different areas. First, I expect additional tranches of administrative guidance dealing with the many remaining technical ambiguities. Kevin mentioned some of these, such as the treatment of CAMPD, branch taxes and ODLs, transfers of DREs in the context of 913. Kevin mentioned all those could benefit from elaboration. The treatment of transferable credits also seems like a, a big one. I think we'll get guidance on safe harbors. There's currently at least three different safe harbors. So there's a transitional CBC safe harbor, there's a permanent safe harbor, and then there's a consideration of a QDMTT safe harbor. There are important outstanding questions on the transitional safe harbor, like what does it mean to have a qualified CBC report? I expect guidance is coming on that. The QDMTT safe harbor is also being negotiated, I understand, and we could see guidance on that item later this year. I'm also expecting to see the final globe information return sometime this year. There was a lot of pushback on that globe information return in the most recent public consultation. So it's possible that the final version will incorporate some of that feedback and eliminate the entity by entity breakout, for example. Other ongoing work streams where we could see guidance would include the outcomes of peer review process to determine if an implementing jurisdiction's rules are of a qualified nature. And then there's also important ongoing work on tax certainty that includes preventing disputes from arising in the first place through clear rules, et cetera. And then there's also 
uh, consideration of novel tax resolution processes that go beyond MAP. So as you can see, there is a lot to come here, some technical like the administrative guidance and safe harbor guidance, other more administrative in nature, such as the globe information return, and then others more focused on tax certainty. So hopefully there's a lot to look forward to as far as additional guidance that we will see hopefully in the short term. Thank you, Kevin and Marcus, for joining us today and providing an update on Pillar 2. It seems like the key takeaway from today is that this is happening. Countries are making progress towards implementation of these rules. And we all should have a close eye, not only on future administrative guidance to be released that will hopefully clear up some of the outstanding issues and questions that we've discussed today surrounding the rules, but then also on draft legislation as countries start the process of turning the model rules into legislative text. As always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.